Hier komen we in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Ros Ward. I'm the host of the show. My technical producer is Liam Ward. We're not related. <laughs> um, and we appreciate your support for the show on patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast if you're a fan or even if you're a first time listener. Feel free to chuck in a couple of bucks to help us uh, keep producing this podcast. It's a radical left-wing revolutionary socialist podcast. And on this episode uh, that we're recording on the 25th of April, on Anzac Day, we're joined by historian Robert Bollard, who is widely published on the labour movement in Australia um, during the First World War and author of the book In the Shadow of Gallipoli, uh, which was published in 2013 and is available in our Red Flag bookshop, shop.redflag.org.au, with a range of other radical revolutionary titles available and more and more is being added to that shop all the time, I'm told. So even if you've had one look, uh, go and have another look. There's more stuff in there. Okay, so April the 25th. I want to begin... Um, with a quote, uh, April the 25th has become a day of imperial boasting and military boast boosting. On Anzac Day, capitalists, politicians and priests will don their silk hats and decorations and come out and chant about Anzac in order to build up a new military tradition in Australia, to get ready new Anzacs for recruiting, to prepare young Australia for another bloody massacre. That was a quote written in 1928 in the Communist Party paper, The Workers' Weekly, by somebody they just labelled a class-conscious digger. And what we're doing today, just in discussing Anzac Day and some of the context of the war, is looking at it from a class-conscious perspective, which is really what Robert Bollard does um, in all of his work, which makes it so refreshing from, I'm sure, a lot of the stuff that is going around right now, hmm. um, glorifying imperial boasting and military boosting, as that um, communist said in 1928. So Anzac Day began on the 25th of April 1916, so when the war was still happening. Can you talk about what the initial purpose of Anzac Day was and sort of where it fitted in that context of the ongoing war that Australia was then involved in? I can give you one word. To start with, recruitment. Um, yeah. Now, to put it in the context of the war, you actually have to know a little bit about what was happening militarily with the Anzacs. So in April 1916, the Anzacs were in the process of being introduced to the Western Front. They hadn't fought on the Western Front yet. They'd only fought in the Middle East, at Gallipoli, and I think they may have started to fight in, uh, some of them may have started the fighting in the Sinai at that point. But basically... Gallipoli was it at that point. So the first Anzac Day, which of course was the first, the 12 month anniversary of the landing in Gallipoli, celebrated that landing and that campaign, which was all there was at that point in the war. But 
Well, because of that, I mean, Gallipoli was a disaster in a whole series of ways. It was a defeat, which is often sort of brushed over. Mm. Um, but it wasn't as disastrous as the Western Front would be. Just to put that in context, the first battle that the Anzacs would fight on the Western Front was at Fromel in July, so three months after that Anzac Day. In that battle, which lasted one day, uh, the casualties were a bit less but still comparable to the entire eight months of the Gallipoli campaign. And the bodies were dumped in mass graves by the Germans because the Germans won the battle. And those mass graves were only uncovered, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. So that gives you some idea of what ha was about to happen but also what hadn't happened yet. But despite the fact that those casualties hadn't happened, and by the way, the other thing that's interesting is and significant in its own way, is that the day before Anzac Day in 1916, in another part of the world, a group of people walked into a post office mm. in Dublin with guns. In other words, the East Uprising began. Something which would be enormously significant given that 20% of the Australian population at the time of the First World War were Catholic and that being Catholic in Australia then meant being Irish. So... But the other thing that is often forgotten and is tends to be ignored even by respectable, supposedly respectable uh, well, uh, historians is something that was happening on the home front in 1916, which began in January 1916, a strike wave. During the course of 1916, beginning with a strike at Brogan Hill in January 1916 and then culminating in a huge walkout by coal miners in December, which actually happened on the day of the conscription uh, referendum, uh, a million workers went on strike. There was only five and a half million people in Australia in 1916. One million workers went on strike in that year. Um, mostly short, sharp strikes. The reason for the strikes was wartime inflation, mostly. Um, the, the, during the war, the the, uh, the cost of living increased from 1914 to 1919 by two-thirds and wages only increased by third. So the motive of strikes is fairly obvious. But the point is that um, a combination of two economic factors, along with some, also some idea from the Gallipoli campaign that war wasn't, this war wasn't as, as fun as it was made out to be, um, had led to a collapse in recruiting. Those two economic factors was the fact that when the war started, Australia was in recession. That recession peaked in March 1915 with unemployment at 11%. There was no dull. Imagine if you're an 18-year-old, 19, 21-year-old, unemployed, and someone offered you a paid trip to Europe. What would you do? Hmm. Um, and so it's not really surprising that at that point around, but just shortly after that, in July 1915, so two months after, that peak in unemployment was the peak in recruitment. But unemployment largely evaporated or went down to normal levels by the end of 1915 for a variety of reasons, not the least so many people had gone overseas to fight, so there were less people looking for work. Um, and... The other thing, of course, with the other economic factor I've already mentioned was inflation, which led to people going on strike. So, but also, 
So you have a situation where the economic reason for enlisting disappeared. The war's looking less attractive because you're hearing about casualties from Gallipoli already. And so recruitment began to collapse. And you have to see that that first Anzac Day was part of an attempt to use the memory, the celebration, etc., of the Gallipoli landing to try and reinvigorate a waning recruitment campaign. Because mm. one of the things you, you um, talk about is the fact that if you put a graph of unemployment um, levels in 1915 and overlaid a graph of recruitment um, into the army, they would pretty much match. And that's really something that is, is not talked about by mainstream historians at all. Mm. It's sort of people's reflections of the war is, you know, everyone just took up their patriotic duty, you know, put on their uniform with relish and off they went to do some good or something, mm. you know, like and then it gets a bit vague at that point. Yeah, there's a, there is a, um, there's a, me- there's a me- methodology at work. It's not just there's a class bias and there's a tendency to want to glorify war, whatever, but even amongst those who are probably inclined to be critical themselves from a liberal standpoint of a war, there's still a methodology which is an idealist one and which is, looks at, at history from the top rather than the bottom of society. And, there, and uh, what that means is that I mean, it's reflected when I – it used to be a level of frustration for me when I taught undergraduate history that I had to mark essays that were given to students. And one of the questions was, you know, why do people enlist during the First World War? And inevitably, what you got back, and it's only fit, I'm not having to go to students because they got back what they got from the texts, was mm. stuff about, oh, people were patriotic. This is what they believed. Mm. Um, so what you have is historians looking at what was said in the recruitment campaign. So this is what was said in the recruitment campaign. You should go because, you know, you're fighting for the empire. Oh, so people believed in the empire, did they? No, that's what they said in the recruitment campaign. We, that doesn't tell you why people joined up. We, mm. um, the, the simple fact that you could, as I said, as you mentioned, uh, plot a, a graph of unemployment and you can see that as unemployment goes up, recruitment goes up, and as it goes down, recruitment collapses. Well, that tells you something mm. about why people are joining. Far more fundamental than what some bloke in a in a top hat said at a at a at a, at a recruitment meeting. Mm. Yeah, and so we had this. Oh, sorry, go. We, no, you go. Oh, and 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 later on, when there's a uh, when you get to the conscription referendum, and this is a real uh, thing that annoyed me when I I wrote the book. I had to I had to go and do original research around the conscription referendum because I found it was impossible to find in any any account of the war a description of what actually happened in the conscription referendum. Mm. I even found difficulty trying to work out when did the split in the ARP happen because even that top-level history wasn't really because there was almost no narrative history of the actual campaign. Mm. What you get in the major books is really just a, a bigger version of what you get in the Year nine textbooks. You go and have a look at a year nine textbook where they talk about the war. And they talk about conscription. They, they, they're not all, you know, Anzac landing on the beaches. You know, they talk about the, the, the opposition to conscription, at least, if not so much the opposition to the war. But 
what they do is they say these are the arguments of the, of the conscriptionists, pro-conscriptionists, and these are the arguments of the anti-conscriptionists. And they talk about stuff that's in the was in the campaign literature of both sides. No description of what was happening on the ground, of the of the violence on the streets, mm-hmm. of the disruption of the of, of meetings by people from either side, or or of the really dramatic thing that happened a couple of months before the referendum that the government actually started conscripting people um, and that this suddenly created an army of young men who knew they were going to go to the Western Front if this thing was passed and who suddenly began, surprise, surprise, turning up at meetings, uh, pro-conscription meetings and wrecking them. Um, mm-hmm. So in, it's, you know, this simple fact was something that no one mentions. Uh, I actually only discovered it by... You know, reading newspapers from the time where you just suddenly see, oh, the announcement made that, oh, we're going to start calling up these people. And then within days you start hearing reports of people turning up to meetings and, and counting down the speakers and, and, and so on. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an incredible um, cover-up of that whole, as you say, the kind of history from below what was actually happening in, in people's lives and, and really like that kind of taking the perspective of the working class, which is very rare in any history, really. Our the and that set of ideas really has continued. And I don't know if you want to say anything about sort of how Anzac Day has um, changed over the years, but certainly we know in recent years, that it has risen again in in kind of public consciousness and not just out of thin air but because of actual, you know, reasons um, that it's been pushed by uh, Australian governments and the Liberal Party governments in particular. And you've written about this um, and said that, you know, remember it's not about remembering anymore, it's about remembrance, it's about totemic, and ritualized and, um, you know, the actual remembering of what really happened on the ground and people's experiences and also the brutal sort of the devastation of the casualties and the deaths involved in the war and, and so on now is just replaced by this commemoration and this act of sort of um, symbolic remembrance and people going off to do – to dawn services and going over to somehow standing in Gallipoli, you know, um, like means something. But can you say a bit more about that, sort of the recent developments and how that's kind of how it's come back to be this strange thing? And even today, you know, the the idea that people are supposed to go and stand in their driveways this morning at 5.30 and put all their lights on and still do that act of remembrance, even in this lockdown situation. Yeah. So it's it's amazing that, I mean, the and the extent to which there is remembering, um, there is, is some remembering going on. It's very, very narrowly focused. It's a point that another historian, Peter Stanley, actually made quite well in, in a review of my book, which uh, that our history, to the extent that we are interested in the history of the wars, it's 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 military history, very narrowly 
military history. And you actually can get a description of, say, the disaster of Fremel's, or you're starting to get some description of things like um, Passchendaele, where 10,000 Australians died and in the mud. Um, but because it's so narrowly a military history with no description of what was happening at home or the reaction to it at home or the politics of it all, that that doesn't dent the myth because what happens is, okay, they suffered and they suffered enormously and maybe you can say it's for the English generals or something like that. But the main thing is that all that serves to say, oh, they really suffered for us. Oh, the poor things. That's, that's why we need to remember them. But it, it, I mean, one thing that I, I, I point out is that when I was a teacher at, at uni and I'd, I'd get to be teaching the First World War sometimes, uh, I, session, I didn't choose what I taught, but I did occasionally get to teach it. And when a, a tutorial would come around, and oh, okay, we're doing the First World War today, and I'd always ask, hands up anyone who's been to the dawn service in Turkey, in Gallipoli itself. And there was always usually one or two who put their hands up. Then I'd ask after that, okay, all right, First World War. What was that all about then? <laughs> Why were we fighting? Silence, crickets. Maybe eventually someone would put their hand up and say something like, oh, didn't some bloke get shot? And that, you know, it wasn't quite the, the, the uh, Blackadder version of, you know, did, I heard some bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich, but it was almost as bad. And... It, it, when you think about it, that young Australians would take, make that enormous emotional and financial investment to travel around the world to celebrate a war, and it never occurred to them to think, why do we fight? What was the reason for this? Why did we land on a beach in Turkey to do something other than swim? I mean, what's the point? Um, because you're not supposed to ask that question. The Anzacs were the Anzacs. They died for us. Well, they didn't die for us. They died for oil. They died to secure the oil in Iraq for the British Navy, and they died to deliver Constantinople into the hands of the Tsar because that was a secret treaty signed a month before the landing. That's why they went there. But you're not supposed to care about that. They died for us. They died for our hill ho hills hoists in some strange way that, you know, the Turks are going to take away our suburban lifestyle or our barbecues or, or whatever. Um, you know, Australian democracy. Well, no, they weren't threatening anything. And we, they didn't die for that. They died in an imperial war. Hmm. Mm. And, and the way you describe that in terms of the, the writing of history and the focus on Gallipoli, which, you know, to... To a, an alien landing and trying to understand what's going on here, that in Australia, Anzac Day is about this one particular place in Turkey where the Anzacs actually lost, but that's the main thing that is, you know, the sort of central feature of all of this remembrance that happens. Um, and you describe this as how Gallipoli as this kind of legend, as this totemic thing, has kind of cast a shadow over everything else that was so important in the history of the First World War. So let's take that shadow off for a second. What, what's kind of underneath? What, are, what were some of the really most significant impacts of that First World War in Australia? Well, the most important impact was uh, actually 
even though the war killed more than 1% of the Australian population died in that war. Just think about that. 68,000 died from a population of five and a half million people. A quarter of a million casualties on the official recommendations, uh, uh, 60%, I think, casualty rate, though recent scholarship has suggested that if we use the same measurement of other countries, the Australian casualty rate was an astonishing 80%. Um, uh, so obviously that's an, that's a, that was a huge impact, but actually the biggest impact was not that horrible though it was. It was economic and that economic impact, uh, the, the um, there was a, a publication back in the 80s that looked at the performance of the Australian economy over longer periods and it came to the conclusion, well, it, it, it produced the statistic that during the years from 1914 to 1919, the Australian economy contracted by I think it was about 3% or something. It doesn't sound that much except that if you look at the decade of the 1930s, the Great Depression, the Australian economy actually grew during the Great Depression, albeit by a, a very anemic 0.7%. So the Australian economy performed worse during the, uh, the Great War than it did during the decade of the Great Depression or the decade of the 1890s, which was another depression. The only thing stopping mass unemployment was that the unemployed were sent off to fight in the war where a whole mm. bunch of them died. Um, the living standards of Australian workers, according to a Royal Commission at the end of the war, fell by a third. You imagine a third cut in real wages. Um, what that would mean today. But imagine what it meant at a time when workers, even in good times, did not have, let's say, a lot of fat, economic fat, that they could you know, they couldn't say, oh, we're not going to have an internet, we'll give up the mobile phone or whatever. No, no, it meant losing your home, it meant going hungry. And that devastating economic impact was not passively resisted because it hit on a working class which was precociously well organised, the, the most best organised working class in the world in 1914, the third of workers already in unions and with a Labor Party in power, which was you know, unique in the world. Now, this was not, it wasn't the most politically conscious or advanced working class in that sense. Obviously, the German or the Russian working class was better in that sense, but it was very well organised mm -hmm. and had a level of uh, basic class consciousness, which was very impressive. So the reaction to that economic devastation was a profound radicalisation of the working class, which left its own mark on Australian society right through to, uh, I would say, to the 1970s that there was a creation during that war of a militant minority which at times would be organised around revolutionary politics and other times uh, less clearly so, but there was a significant revolutionary minority, a vanguard, if you want to call it that, of a working class created in Australia during the First World War which remained uh, for a whole period later on cohered around the Communist Party and other times, you know, it would, it would not be, but it would nevertheless be an influence on Australian politics and the labour movement um, for the rest of the 20th century. Mm. So that is a really profound development, far more profound than, you know, the sort of rubbish that we're supposed to celebrate on Anzac Day, mm. um, you know. 
Um, yeah. So, but, and the other, but the other thing, of course, is that if you look at individual Anzacs, you'll find astonishingly that the Anzacs themselves, you know, the people we're supposed to celebrate, were also involved in, in both sides. So that then the whole thing about Simpson is donkey. We now know that Simpson was a waterside worker, a British waterside worker. As a, he, wanted, he only joined up because he wanted to get home, was opposed to the war, was a socialist. Um, but, of course, all this was hidden for decades, where it's this iconic figure of you know, what it meant to be an Anzac. Um, but my, fa- my favourite is probably the wrong word, but I think the most important example I can think of is Alan, a bloke by the name of Alan Whitaker, who was a, a Melbourne, a bloke from Melbourne, who got shot on the 25th of April 1915 as he landed on the beach. Now, the, the, he was wounded and he recovered. He went back to Melbourne where he got work on the waterfront. And in 1928, he got shot again on a picket line by a Victorian policeman Mm. while he was running away from a baton charge. He got shot in the back of the head. And it's quite famous that he died at that point and it was a a major source of controversy and so on. But what was only revealed recently in an investigation was that um, he took three months to die. And the medical report indicated that he normally wouldn't have expected to have died from the shot that the policeman delivered. It wasn't, wouldn't have normally been fatal. But that his body had been weakened by chronic malnutrition. Hmm. And what does that tell you about how the difference between remembering and remembrance, about what that war really meant and what really happened to the veterans. Now, he wasn't spat on the street by hippies because, you know, as supposedly in the urban myth about the Vietnam War, he wasn't abused when he got home. He was celebrated. He got to get drunk on Anzac Day probably, um, you know, and they'd like doing that because they got a chance. It was one day where if you were a returned soldier, you could meet your old mates and march down the street. He almost certainly didn't join the RSL. Only 7% of returned diggers bothered to do that in the 1920s. Uh, it was an officer's organisation. Mm. Um, but he would have been celebrated and eventually they built a shrine to commemorate those who died and so on. But the actual veterans, what happened to them when they came back, they endured two decades. The 1920s was a, was a hungry decade and the 1930s was an even hungrier one. And you even had this spectacle during the... Uh, Great Depression of unemployed former diggers being forced to work for the dull building the Shrine of Remembrance. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of that is the certainly the hidden part of, you know, like if if the governments thought all those people were so such glorious heroes and they just let them become malnourished and thrown onto the street. And I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of other stories like Alan Whitaker, but also, at the same time, I think why the class analysis stuff is so useful is because it wasn't just this passive thing, you know, like there are material, the material basis for people um, signing up as an economic, you know, basic economic rationale. Um, but there's also a material basis, you know, that continues for the ruling class to whip up nationalism to continue to be able to exploit people in the way that they do. And that struggle, you know, one side and the other, 
and the fact that you know we have strikes as our resistance we have organizing as a class as our way to resist that and the ruling class has its methods which include you know like in recent years trying to whip up again Anzac Day and no surprise to coincide with we we need our Australian troops to go off again and fight for war uh, f- fight for oil again mm. sorry exactly the same as the first world war and that happened you know with Iraq and Afghanistan mm. and this and no surprise that that coincided um with the revival of an- of the Anzac tradition or whatever that's supposed to mean mm. Um, Liam, did you want yeah, to jump in? Yeah, just uh, well, you mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan this morning on the, the ABC coverage of the Anzac Day stuff. They interviewed Jim Molan, who's a liberal liberal mem- liberal MP, and um, but also, of course, uh, used to be a general in the U.S. Army uh, and was involved in the U.S. Army as a general during the invasion of of Iraq, and um, you know personally oversaw the siege and destruction of Fallujah, uh, which is you know, which should be in the record books as one of the most egregious war crimes in history, uh, what they did to the people of Fallujah. Uh, and there he was on ABC radio this morning, goes right back to where we started that one word that, that Robert said about, you know, what's Anzac Day about? He said recruitment. It still is, you know, so this morning you have this spectacle of this guy who should actually be in jail for a, as a war criminal on TV at breakfast, talking about uh, the glories of the Anzac myth and the importance of joining the army and fighting today. And he tells this bizarre story about, you know, he lives in some country part of, uh, New South Wales, where he doesn't have any neighbours, but him and his wife got up at 5am before dawn and went out and saluted the flag in the car headlights. This weird spectacle of, you know, a war criminal saluting the flag at dusk in the countryside on stolen land uh, and then saying, this is what Australia is all about. Well, yeah, actually, he's right on that. <laughs> yeah, war criminals saluting the flag on genocidal, you know, stolen land um, and, and using that to recruit uh, another generation for, for today's uh, imperialist agenda. Mm. And we could have a whole nother episode about the black Anzacs and the way that they were treated. I mean, the, the, like class is really central, but like obviously there was a racist um, dynamic as well and the fact that all of the Aboriginal soldiers who served came back and or, uh, treated like scum basically. Mm. Um, so there, there were one group uh, of soldiers who actually had a better time on the Western Front than they did at home, which tells you something about conditions at home. Mm. Yeah. So as we look forward then um, to sort of more of this Anzac stuff, do you think, Rob? Uh, well, um, yeah, given, the, given that we are still, as we speak, we have been, as a nation, we, well, I haven't been, but you know, the Australian nation has been fighting in imperial wars nonstop for, well, it's the last 19 years. It's getting up to 20 years now. I mean, the, the, the Great War lasted four years. Well, we've been going 20 years, mm-hmm. though it's not. They're very clever about the way they fight it. They don't throw large numbers of Australian men to be, to be killed. I mean, they managed to get through... Um, the Iraq war without any casualties and they've had relatively few in Afghanistan. The nature of the fighting, of course, is probably more, uh, I think I mentioned at one point in my book, that it's it's more like the old, the original, uh, the Sudan war for the 1880s than the, than the Great War in terms of the type of war that we're fighting in these days. But as long as they want to do that, they're going to want to continue to, yes, get recruits 
and and all but also to try and get political support for those wars and and take day central to that and it's the whole thing that you see in america if you can't you know if you, if you any word of criticism of any war is not supporting our troops it's somehow a stab in the back um that's what that's the message they want to push in the whole point about turning and actually the icons is to aid that type of mentality which is fundamental yeah. you know, it's not just about recruitment it's also about political support mm. for the wars that have been for yeah yeah and bolstering australian nationalism which actually in this pandemic has been a real feature all around the world the whipping up of nationalism as well and so it do, it does no harm for the ruling class to you know keep building on that and cracking down on any kind of criticism or dissent from that view of, you know, everything about it was glorious and you're trampling on the memory of these people, even when, as you said, those people came back um, and even there, there's very few, I don't know if there are any, there must be a few, couple left maybe. but For the first one, we'll um, No. <laughs> but I think one of the last ones was of complete, um, anti-war activists. Well, the last one, the last one was an organised for the Builders Labourers Federation, who, who had been during the 1950s the bodyguard of a of a left Labour senator who was believed to be a fellow traveller of the Communist Party. <laughs> that was the very last digger to die. Um, and yes, he was definitely uh, anti-war. And in fact, he was. I don't think he was a communist, but he was uh, associated with the far left of the Labour Party and he was, as I said, a, an organiser for the BLF in Tasmania. Mm. Mm. Well, it's been a really uh, refreshing antidote to have this discussion today. And um, thank you so much for coming and joining us on Red Flag Radio. Um, no worries, it's been great. Mm. And um, thanks, Liam. Pleasure. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>